Well, good morning once again. It's great to see you here at Taylor's. Thank you, um, praise team and choir for leading us in worship this morning. And as we start, I want to share with you a number, particular number that has personal significance and application to me. It's a number 17,177. And the reason that that's you know, important to me is because that's exactly how many days, including today, that I have been alive on planet Earth. 17,177. And in that time, there's been a lot of water that has passed under the bridge. And there have been a lot of things that I know and remember A lot of things that I've forgotten. It's probably true for you as well. And it's funny, I remember uh, things that happened to me as a child a long, long time ago, and I forget where I was and what I ate two weeks ago. Uh, But, you know, I think that's part of the reason is because I think as we reflect on life, we don't tend to remember. I read this this week. We don't tend to remember days. You know what we remember? We remember moments. We remember moments, and uh, we are marked, and we're shaped by those moments, and um, they leave a lasting impact. I remember, I'll give you a few that I remember. Uh, I remember the moment that I was driving through Atlanta traffic. It was 1996, and I drove for the very first time to Dallas Seminary. And I was in my 1993 Green Ford Explorer. It was packed to the gills, and I'm driving through Atlanta traffic. I had left a known and world and family uh, behind, and I remember driving through Atlanta in the moment. I just remember telling, Lord, this is absolutely crazy. Lord, what have you called me to? Why am I doing this? What am I getting myself into? I remember, I remember that moment. It was a scary time in a lot of ways, but it's also a great opportunity to have my faith stretched. Uh, I remember the very first moment that I ever laid eyes on my wife. And I remember how I felt two years ago when she came walking down the aisle and we were married. I remember standing in a tourist shop in Israel with one of my professors from seminary. His name was John Hannah, and he just walked up to me. There was some conversation that I was having with some other folks, and he just walked up and he just gently patted me on the back. And he just whispered in my ear, he said, David, you really should be a pastor. Pat, Pat, walked off. (laughs) And that was what I was fighting. When I went to Dallas Seminary, that was the last thing I wanted to do was be a pastor. I'm like, Lord, I will go, but I'm not going to be a pastor. So be careful what you say you won't do at times. But, you know, I remember those were six simple words that he spoke in a moment that changed the trajectory of my life and was one of the things that helped convince me of what God was calling me to. I remember uh, the final moments with my dad at St. Francis Hospital, right as he was in the throes of leaving this earth and going into his new home in heaven, and we were praying and singing and, and talking, and he sat straight up out of the bed and looked directly at me in the eyes. And then he went, I remember that moment. I'm shaped by that moment as I think about it. And I remember with joy and the sadness of dropping off our oldest son, William, at college two weeks ago today. You know, I remember some of those moments a couple weeks ago. But, you know, if you think about it, my life, I've been marked by those moments, and you have your moments too, and you've been marked by them as well, and you've learned from them, and you've grown through them. And a lot of those moments are happy moments. They're joyful moments, but some of them are challenging, aren't they? Some of them are difficult. 
times when uh, you feel like you've been thrown into the deep end of the pool, treading water with no timeouts. And you suddenly remember, I can't swim. (laughs) That's a scary moment. But it's an opportunity to have our faith stretch. And I think sometimes when God puts us in situations, he wants us to learn and grow through these moments and experiences. And, And whether we learn or whether we grow, oftentimes is going to be dependent on how we respond. Will we embrace the challenges in front of us or will we seek to eliminate them and dismiss them away? And so today, we come to a very familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, We're going to take a look at a story, I think, that speaks of a very challenging moment uh, that mattered in the life and ministry of Jesus' 12 disciples and all the people who were gathered there. And so I want to take a moment to invite my daughter, Claire, to come and join me. She is going to do our Scripture reading for the day. And as she comes, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And um, we're going to be reading, or she'll be reading, I should say, from John 6, starting in verse 4. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the scene, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Thank you, Claire. You guys can have a seat. I texted Kevin this week and I said the passage that I'm going to preach on today is, is a familiar passage. I said it kind of reminds me of trying to preach a sermon on Christmas. You know, you've come to it so often and it becomes such a familiar text that a lot of us here in the room today are familiar with. But I hope that the Holy Spirit uh, will just take some of the things that we're going to talk about and things that you'll hear and just apply them in a way that will be significant. Maybe even see this in a new light uh, today. But as we come to verse 1, where John is, is talking about this miracle of the 5,000, it's interesting. It's the only miracle besides the resurrection that is actually recorded in all four gospel accounts. So it's significant in and of that by itself. But I think there's a lot that's going on here in verse 1. It says, after these things. And what are some of these things? Well, uh, Jesus, if you go back a chapter to chapter 5, verse 18, uh, there were a bunch of people who were seeking his life. Put a bounty on his head. They wanted to kill and destroy Jesus because he had healed a man on the Sabbath because he had made claims to be God. 
And so the stress, there's this growing uh, excitement about what's going on in Jesus' ministry, but there's also a growing antagonism. And so you've got that going on. You have the disciples who have just come from a ministry tour. They've been sent out by Jesus to proclaim the kingdom of God, uh, to perform healings. And so I'm sure that they are tired physically and emotionally, mentally and spiritually uh, after a lot of, uh, of output. Jesus had also just heard about Herod putting John the Baptist to death. So a stressful time for Jesus and his 12 disciples. And so he says, I want us to go away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee excuse me, for some time of privacy and some rest. And I think it's interesting that word goes away. Um, it's it's um, a pattern, really, that you see in the life and the ministry of Jesus of uh, engagement with people followed by retreat. And I had one professor that used to say the key to an effective ministry is to have an appropriate balance between involvement with people and isolation from people. So there's got to be the engagement and the output, but there's got to be the time of isolation and a time for the Lord to refuel us. And so Jesus is encouraging them to get away. And it says in verse 2 that a large, enthusiastic crowd followed them there and created, if you will, kind of a human traffic jam, an infectious attention uh, this buzz that was going around because of all that Jesus was doing, a tidal wave of popularity, and the people, they couldn't see enough healing, they couldn't hear enough teaching, and so these signs are going on. And, and John tells us later in his gospel in chapter 20, he says the whole purpose and the reason for his writing the gospel, and specifically including the signs that he includes, uh, were for two reasons. And number one, he says that they may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The second is that they may know that by believing, they may have life, eternal life in his name. And so John has written this account for those very purposes and, and others as well. But he mentions that at the end of his gospel. And so Jesus goes up on the mountain, says the mountain, not a mountain. I don't know if it was one that they were familiar with. Uh, or not, but I take it that it could have been a place they had gone before. And he's sitting there with the 12. John tells us the Passover was near, a celebration of God's deliverance that had gathered a lot of people together for this great feast in the life of Israel. And so you move into verse 5, and here's where a problem is presented. And Jesus is sitting with the disciples as the crowd is approaching. And Matthew tells us that he felt great compassion They've gone away for this time of private retreat, and yet all these people follow him, and, and his heart as he sees these people coming, instead of looking at it as an irritation, he looks at it as an opportunity, and he feels compassion. They're like sheep without a shepherd, and so he looks at this as a teachable moment for his disciples. And verse 5 tells us what Jesus did. It says he asked a question. He looked at Philip, as Claire read a moment ago, and he said, where are we to buy bread? And the other gospels will tell us that as he asked that, you know, the, the disciples that were telling Jesus, listen, send them away, shoo, get them out of here, tell them to scram. We, we don't have time and we don't have the food, we don't have the money to take care of this problem, but that's not what Jesus wants to do because he has something else in mind. And in verse 6, it tells us why he asked that question to Philip, and the reason is he wanted to test him. When you think about tests, the first thing that comes to my mind is school, all right? 
How many of you students, when I say the word test, think about school? Yeah, in a negative way, right? I don't like tests. I didn't like them when I, when I had to take them. That's one of the things that I don't miss about being in school is those tests. But life still brings plenty of them, right? But I remember as a student, I didn't like tests. But teachers used to have us take tests or quizzes, you know, was to provide a sense of opportunity for us to learn something new. To, to understand realities that we needed to grasp. And it was a motivation to help us look and see things uh, anew and to, and to learn what we needed to learn. It's the same thing here. And I think Jesus' purpose wasn't necessarily to have them solve the problem, but to come to a realization uh, that, humanly speaking, there was no solution that they could provide in and of themselves. And so God will test his children. He tests me. He tests you. He tests his children. He says in Genesis chapter 22 uh, that he tested Abraham when he told him to take Isaac and sacrifice him at the altar. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about fire uh, being a test of the quality of a person's life and work. That fire is a test, but it, it has a good result. It refines and it purifies so it brings about good. Um, and so Jesus here, I think, is placing the 12 in the midst of a problem that they uh, recognize as bigger than they could solve on their own. And so Jesus' other idea, the disciples wanted to get rid of the problem. And Jesus says, listen, I don't want to do that because I have an intention to involve you in the process and to see some things about me that you need to grasp. And so he tells them what they didn't expect to hear. He says, you give them something to eat. Not me. He says, you give them something to eat. And the disciples' response here in 7 to 9 helps us to recognize their inadequacy and their limited perspective. And so in verse 7, Philip's answer is basically this. We don't have enough money to buy food. Eight months' worth of work isn't enough for us to buy food that would provide even just a little bit for them. So he said essentially... It can't be done. It can't be done. How are we supposed to do that? And he was calculating, but he calculated without Christ. He didn't include the Lord's power and capability in his equation. And so his limitations are exposed. And here we see Philip is looking at this situation that's in front of him through a physical perspective, looking at things on a physical level and not spiritual. It's ironic, I think, that he's watched, if you go back, in the gospel, they've seen, these men that have walked with Jesus have seen Jesus perform miracles time and time again, and yet they're in the middle of an impossible situation, and they're not expectant that he possibly could do another one here. And I think, you know, we may be quick to, to say, man, that's a, that's a fault of Philip's, but it's a fault of mine. It's probably a fault of yours, too, if you're honest. It's sometimes we forget about the faithfulness of God in the past that gives us hope to trust that he will be faithful and dependable for the future. And so Philip, I think it's interesting. He didn't recognize it. He basically came to the recognition that logic uh, tells me this can't be done, and it's insufficient. The second answer is by Andrew, and he says, listen, all we have is a little boy's lunch. We've got five barley loaves and two fish. But he, asks, he says this, but what are these for so many, and here you get another perspective of a, another person with a limited view. Uh, it's not enough. It's impossible. What we have is not 
sufficient. And so they overlooked their own resources, even if they were meager, but they also overlooked the Lord's power in that moment. And I like some, uh, some words that I, I came across this week, a quote by Watchman Nee. I don't know if you know of him, but a, a Christian uh, minister in China back in the 1930s who said some words I think are really, uh, really good words for us to remember. He said this, the meaning of need okay, is not dependent on the supply in hand, but on the blessing of the Lord resting on the supply, right? And that's something that they didn't grasp. They were looking at what they had, but they didn't recognize the Lord into whom hands they could entrust what they had. And so Jesus is looking at this as a teachable moment, an opportunity to seize this impossible problem uh, and remind them that human wisdom, human resources aren't sufficient, but that he is capable of doing something they're not even expecting. And Bill Lawrence, another professor of mine, um, had this to say about this story that I think it's a critical principle that Jesus is teaching them and I think wants us to understand too. Uh, and it's this, all we're ever going to have is a little boy's lunch. All we're ever going to have is five little biscuits, two small fish to do ministry and to do life. And he says, you're going to have to learn to do what you cannot do what you, with what you do not have for the rest of your life. You'll have to do what you cannot do with what you do not have for the rest of your life. I think Jesus wanted them to recognize their own inadequacy apart from him. But look in verse 10 through 13, uh, we, we shift from the disciples' inadequacy and a limited perspective to seeing a picture of Christ's adequacy and unlimited power. And so he's going to come here in verse 10, and, and he says after they recognize this through their questions and their response that highlighted their inadequacy, Jesus said, have the people sit down. He said, listen, have everybody take a seat on the grass. And he knows what he's going to do. And he invited them to begin the process of participating. And so Jesus, in verse 11, it says he gave thanks. He just lifted up his hands and offered a blessing over what was brought to him. And um, a traditional uh, blessing that would have been given in times such as that. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us something interesting. John doesn't mention it here. He says Jesus distributed the food, but the other accounts say Jesus through them distributed the food to the people. And here's, here's this, it's, it's just, I think, a beautiful picture. Is they brought the little bit that they had, and they turned it over and put it in the hands of Jesus. And he blessed it. And you know what he did? He then returned it right back to the disciples and involved them in the process of being a part. This is a participatory miracle. A lot of these other miracles, Jesus is doing things on his own, but here he invites him in. And it's a picture of what he does with you and me, that God has a plan to meet the needs in the world, but he wants to involve you and me as a critical part of that process. And so the corollary, uh, corollary excuse me, of what I mentioned about Bill Lawrence saying a moment ago and this is something that Jesus wanted them to recognize, not only their inadequacy, that they're going to have to learn to do what they can't do with what they don't have for the rest of their life. Jesus says this, I want you to know this too. I will do what I can do with what you do have through you for the rest of your life. Right? 
We can't do it on our own. We may say we can't, but God can. We may doubt at times, but Jesus is capable of delivering in moments such as that. And I think that's something that he wants them to grasp. And another lesson that he teaches in verse 12, you know, it says, when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. And so the need was more than met. It wasn't just met. It was met with abundance because the disciples then take 12 baskets and they go out and they collect the food that was left over. And I think it's a lesson in themselves for them because I can imagine if you put yourself in their shoes, if I put myself in their shoes, I can imagine the anxiousness they must have felt when Jesus said, where are we going to buy bread and take care of this need? Because they saw the great multitude. It was a great problem and how are we going to fix that and Jesus I think it's a coincidence there were 12 baskets taken up by 12 men who each walked away with a basket full of what God had provided and a lesson for them to recognize visible tangible expressions in that moment for them to realize of who who Jesus was and what he was capable of doing if they would only trust and put their dependence upon him. And so verse 14 wraps up the section and and says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And so you have their proclamation. This is the prophet that Deuteronomy chapter 18 speaks about. It's a time back in the Old Testament when Moses provided food for folks, God through Moses provided food for them in the desert. And here Jesus is doing the same thing. And I think what John is wanting us and his readers to realize is that Jesus has come on the scene as the new and better Moses. Okay? And I think that's why he includes this as Passover. All this was on their mind. And so just some great, great observations, some opportunities to have uh, a chance to, for them to learn and to grow and opportunities, I think, for you and me to learn and grow. And there's a lot of applications, a lot of things that we could focus on. But what I want to do for just the next few minutes as we're wrapping up is to focus our attention on one thing, and that is how do we take and transform these challenges that come up in our life, problems, if you will, and how do they become transformed into moments that matter? And I think there are a couple of responses I want to mention very briefly uh, that will or are necessary in order for those problems to turn into moments that matter for our good and His glory. And the first is this, is to adopt a new perspective. Adopt a new perspective towards problems and challenges. It's all in how you see it. And listen, I've preached to myself thinking through all this, and uh, I'm working on this in my own life, okay? We're all a work in progress. But I think it is important to be reminded that we are constantly needed to be reminded that we need to adopt a new perspective when it comes to challenges and how you see it. And I just want to ask this question. Do we tend to see, do you tend to see, do I tend to see problems through a human or heavenly perspective? Through human eyes, my human eyes or God's eyes, Do we tend to look at problems or challenges as obstacles of impossibility, or do we look at them as doors of opportunity? And I came across a quote by Chuck Swindoll. He said this, We are all faced with a series of great opportunities, brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. I like that, you know? 
God gives us and puts us, even as Jesus put his own men in the path of a problem that was bigger than they could have fixed on their own. He does it on purpose, right? Because he wants us to view them as great opportunities to learn some things about ourselves and to learn some things about the Lord and his capabilities and who he is and uh, to reveal his glory, his power, and his adequacy. So adopting a new perspective is one. The second response is to embrace the challenge and to entrust ourselves to the Lord. And I think when we come across problems, I can respond in one of two ways. Maybe you do too. One of them is we can seek to escape them. That's what the disciples wanted to do. They, they went to Jesus and they said, Jesus, just send them away. We want to get out of this situation. We don't want to have to deal with this. Or they could embrace them as Jesus wanted them to do and intended for them to do so that they could see him work and to entrust both themselves and what they had to God to solve a problem they couldn't do in their own strength. And I think, you know, if we look at problems through a human perspective or human eyes, if we tend to look at obstacles of impossibility or irritations or inconveniences, I think we're more apt to seek the escape route. But I think if we can look at things, begin to adopt a new perspective and entrust ourselves to Christ and and look at these things that are in our life, whatever they may be, as doors of opportunity, I think we're more apt to embrace them. And I think we're more apt to move in the direction of entrusting ourselves to the Lord and, and, and putting our dependence and our trust on Him. There's a quote by Jack Taylor. I think it's going to come up on your screen. I want to read it to you. And he says this, I remind you that every miracle began on a platform of a problem. I dare you to find a miracle that did not begin in a problem. If we could ever see that, we would have an entirely different attitude towards our own problems. Problems are those situations engineered of God to bring us face to face with our own deficiencies so that we might view his sufficiency as our only alternative. And we should learn to love our problems. That's very hard to do for me. But every problem is an opportunity to trust the Lord and to watch him step into circumstances to his glory. And he ends with a perspective that's not as common for me as I wish it were. He says, you have a problem? Well, good. (laughs) Good, because it's an opportunity if we choose to see it that way. And so when you and I are facing these great opportunities or these seemingly impossible situations, um, just some some basic things, just I I remind myself of this, just to pause. I have to pause. I had to do it last night. I had to pause about a problem that I was faced with and just pausing and praying and then pondering and then proceeding, taking time to think and to ask the Lord in the midst of a problem because oftentimes I just want them to go away. Life would be so much easier if I didn't have to deal with that. But that may not always be what God wants. Matter of fact, it may be exactly what he wants for us is to wrestle through some of these things. And do we take the time to say, Lord, what is it that you want to teach me in the midst of this situation? God, How how do you want me to grow and to mature and to be conformed more into the image of Christ as a result of of having to step out and to embrace this situation that I'd rather not, but entrusting myself to you? How are you going to help me to become more like your son? 
by facing that with him. And I think when we do that, there's great result and benefit because I think God has the opportunity at that point to become something or someone to us. Maybe it's a teacher. He has the opportunity to teach us to become our teacher in situations like that. He has the opportunity to become our deliverer in situations like that. He has the opportunity to become our provider in moments like that. And so I remember, um, so I've shared my story with, with you from this place before. I won't go into the details, but I, I, I remember this is another moment that mattered. It was an extended 22-month moment, okay? <laughs> it was a long time. Um, I remember leaving Atlanta in 2008. I had lost my job. I'd never been in that situation before. And I just remember um, feeling like I've just been thrown into this walkabout experience, this kind of wilderness, dry time. And, and I, I learned some really important things about myself. I learned that I wasn't in control. I mean, I think oftentimes that's what we want. We want to be in control of situations. And I think that's natural but I had to learn that I really wasn't in control of anything. I couldn't change my circumstances. I had to learn to wait and hope, and that was really hard, but I learned that the Lord is always at work in the waiting. It seems like such a, a, time, a dead time, but it's not dead at all. It's very much alive, and God is at work when we're having to wait even longer than anticipated, I think. And I had to learn that my peace didn't come from having a job opportunity in front of me or a, a salary and insurance for my family and as good and, and blessings as those kinds of things are, I had to learn in the midst of that that my peace didn't come from that. My peace came through Christ and having him and trusting him and leaning in a scary time of life to trust him. And you know what was funny? When he began to restore some of those things back to me, like he gave the bread back to the disciples, you know what? I found that I kind of missed that living on the edge a little bit. The scariness, the fear, the anxiousness of that, because it kept me dependent. It kept me trusting in a way that, that when things were all working, I didn't have to. And so I remember that. And so God has great things for us um, to learn in ways he wants us to grow when he walks us through seemingly impossible situations that get disguised as great opportunities. And so let me, let me just close with a, a well-known story, um, maybe familiar to a number of you, maybe others of you aren't familiar, but I think it tells the story of someone who I think looked at and transformed a very difficult and challenging problem into a moment that mattered, okay? And it's a story that George Mueller writes about in his journals. And if you're not familiar with George Mueller, he was a Christian missionary. He was an evangelist. He uh, was the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. It was a, a ministry that, that came alongside 120,000 orphans. Uh, in his day. And besides that, as if that wasn't an extensive enough ministry, uh, in his lifetime, he traveled over 200,000 miles and preached the gospel in 42 countries around the world. And in his journals, Mueller would write and tell stories about miracle after miracle and opportunities to see God at work time and time again of God's provision in the midst of seemingly impossible and problematic circumstances. And one of those journals is a familiar story. It speaks of a problem in the orphanage one morning as they 
uh, realized they had no food. It was breakfast time, and there was no food in their pantry. They had no money to go and restock the shelves. And the children, he writes, were waiting for their morning meal. And in that moment, George Mueller faced a problem. And he faced a problem that was bigger than what he could fix by himself. And yet I think George Mueller saw this as a door of opportunity, an opportunity to put his trust and dependence in a big God, to see God move and for his faith to be stretched and to learn the capability of what God could do. And so you know what George Mueller did? In essence, he said, set the table, an act of faith. And he said, he turned to the children and I said, children, you know, we must be in time for school. And so he lifted up his hands and he prayed, Dear Father, we thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. That's a big prayer in that moment, a big prayer of faith to a big God in the midst of a big problem, right? And here's what he wrote, that in his journal, momentarily, there was a knock at the door. And standing there on the other side of the door was the baker. And the baker said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. this morning and baked some fresh bread, and I've brought it. And he thanked him, and no sooner had he left when there was a second knock at the door, the milkman, whose cart had broken down just down the road, and he said he would like to give the children his cans of milk so that he could empty his wagon to repair it. And so just reading and hearing about that story, listen, that was a moment that mattered. That was a moment that mattered. It mattered greatly to George Mueller. I imagine it mattered greatly to the children that had a chance to see God provide, to the staff at the orphanage to see what God did in the midst of a big problem when they entrusted their prayer to a big God. And I just want to close in saying this, listen, as a church, we have a lot of challenges. This is a moment for our church. But listen, this is a moment that matters. I want you to pray. I'm praying. I hope you're praying that God will turn these challenges into moments that will matter, that we'll look back one day and realize how we saw God move as we entrusted ourselves to him and depended on him with the little bit, the little, the little lunch that we have, the little five biscuits and two fish that we bring and offer every day of our life. It's a moment that matters. And if we'll entrust ourselves to him, God can do great and wonderful things to reveal some things about ourselves we may need to learn, to reveal to us some things about God we may need to learn. And it's not just here at Taylor's on a corporate level. I don't know where everyone's a lot of people in this room, and I don't know what personal circumstances are going on in your life. I know some of them. But there are a lot of challenges, and we've all got them. And I just want you to know God may have orchestrated the circumstances that you're in because he wants to transform that problem in a moment that's going to matter in your life. And he's calling us to trust him and to respond in faith and to remember, as I said earlier, that you and I are going to have to learn to do what we cannot do with what we don't have for the rest of our life. But if we'll entrust ourselves to him, we take great comfort in knowing that Jesus says also that he will do what he can do with what you and I have through you and me for the rest of our lives. Amen?
we come to this time of commitment, I just want to um, say before I pray, um, are you facing a time of impossibility in your own life? And if you are, I hope that this message today, this text from Scripture, the Spirit of God will use it in a way to remind you to adopt a new perspective possibly, to entrust yourself to Christ and to embrace rather than flee from it. But, you know, too often we find ourselves in situations and we, we aren't sure where we go for help or where to turn. And I just want to say that during this time of commitment as we come and we sing, if you need to talk to someone about whatever that is, somebody to pray with you. If you want to come and share how God has, has been that for you and delivered you and have a praise, I want to invite you to come and to share that as well. If you have questions about how you can know this one and you can trust and put your dependence on for eternal life, I would love to talk to you about that. And maybe it's none of those things. Maybe it's just you being right where you are for the next moment and praying and saying, Lord, what do you want to teach me? What do you want me to learn? And how can I learn to have a greater sense of trust and dependence as you walk me through, not over or around or underneath, but through the circumstances in my life? Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for you. And I am grateful for this time we've been able to share and worship as we have sang today, as we've prayed, as we've taken a look at the Scriptures, Lord, for hope and encouragement And I just pray for all of us, for myself, I pray it for every person and every family here. That, Lord, you would prove yourself to be trustworthy and dependable. And especially in moments that we're facing, whether they're individual problems and challenges, Lord, whether they're collective issues as a church that we're waiting our way through, Lord, show us yourself. Reveal your glory and your power and help us to come with humble hearts, Lord, to recognize our own inadequacy that in and of our own strength, Lord, uh, we're limited, but Lord, you are not. And as George Mueller prayed and entrusted himself to a big God to solve a big problem, Lord, we do that today. Lord, we pray and ask these things, Lord, that you would move and work. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.